1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Comics and Graphic Novels, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Boak, a host of the channel, one of many. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Paul Fisher-Davies about his book, Comics as Communication, a Functional Approach, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2020. Dr. Paul Fisher-Davies gained his PhD in 2017 at the University of Sussex, where he's also been an associate lecturer and student mentor. He's published in Studies in Comics, the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics, the Comics Grid and Inks, among others. And he's also published sketchnotes and academic work in comics form. He teaches English language and literature at East Sussex College in the UK. Comics as Communication, a Functional Approach, explores how comics function to make meaning in the manner of a language. It outlines a framework for describing the resources and practices of comics creation and readership, using an approach that's compatible with similar descriptions of linguistic and multimodal communication. The approach is based largely on the work of Michael Halliday, drawing also on the pragmatics of Paul Grice, the text world theory of Paul Worth and Joanna Gavins, and ideas from art theory, psychology, and narratology. This brings a broad Hallidayian framework of multimodal analysis into comic scholarship and plays a part in extending that tradition of multimodal linguistics to graphic narrative. In this interview, Dr. Davies talks a bit about how to use a linguistic framework to analyze comics. His interest in Toki Pono and his own practice of sketchnoting, among many other things. So, Dr. Paul Fisher Davies, welcome to the show. Paul, I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Hi, thanks very much for having me. Um Yeah, goodness. Uh, I'll I'll see whether this becomes the long version or not. So <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've been interested in comics, of course, since I was a kid. grew up on um, Asterix and Tintin and the usual fair, the Beano, and so on in the UK, uh, and later on things like Star Wars comics and and, and all the kind of mainstream stuff uh, that, that a youngster does in the 70s and 80s um, in the UK. Um, but the things that really stuck with me from that kind of early consumption of comics are uh, included the comics that people sort of got for me accidentally, which I shouldn't have been reading. Um, so I think my granny bought me something which must have been, I have not been able to track this down, but must have been a reprint of something like creepy stories or weird stories or something like that, the sort of EC comics. So, I, uh, yeah, I distinctly remember reading absolutely terrifying, but great story. Uh, there's one about the butterfly effect, which I think has been redrawn several times, where the guy at the end, spoilers, uh, you know, kills a butterfly and then looks at his face in the mirror when he returns, and evolution has gone a different direction. Uh, and then another one about beautiful women from a planet where they turn out to be heads on saucers and they have no bodies absolutely amazing accidental purchases but they're really cool uh, she also bought me i think a couple of girls comics including misty which i ended up not working on later and then there are some other little things which which i came across and i was like that's a comic i want to read that that looks really interesting and it turned out to be something that was not for little kids um I wish I could track down the free comic that was given away in a goodie bag from a circus I went to when I must have been quite young, less than 10, which I think was like underground indie comics, at least in its style. Absolutely amazing. I I remember very little about the content, but I just loved the art style. It's intricate black and white hatched stuff, um, which was incredible. Uh, and then my cousins, I had older cousins who had comics, which were also kind of underground-y. y cannot track it down, but it was grown-up stuff with grown-up jokes that I absolutely adored. Um, so, yeah, that that sort of sustained me through an early interest in comics and this sort of dim realization that they could be more than the Beano. They could do all sorts of things. Uh, And it was the form that I kind of enjoyed, I I wanted to be doing comics with these comics. Um, And I went through a fallow period, as people do often with comics, but then when I was like a late teenager, it was the period when comics weren't for kids anymore, when The Dark Knight was coming out, Uh, and Mouse, I think the first part had been published. so. I was also lucky to have a a comics shop nearby, an independent comics shop called Calamity Comics. I had to look this up um, in Harrow in northwest London, which is closing down actually this year, having been there for 40 years. Um, and it was Calamity Comics that, that gave me access to things like The Dark Knight, like um, uh, I've still got some early sort of repackaged uh, Hernandez Brothers, stories presented, as people were doing often these days, as a graphic novel, i.e., you know, a digest size format, about A5 size, often with fold-over covers, and I loved those objects, and it's Los Bros Hernandez, who I hadn't heard anything about before, and they were becoming available to me. Uh, So that was amazing. You also had, I Got Barefoot Gen, uh, which, you know, in The Wake of Mouse was another incredibly powerful historical story of war, published by Penguin, mainstream, look like a novel, but it's full of comics. I was a literature student at the time, um, but here was comics as literature, which was kind of amazing to me, um, but then also utterly confusing because it stops dead in the middle of stuff and there was never anything else published because, you know, manga go on forever, of course, and uh, novels kind of don't in the same way. Uh, but Calamity Comics also gave me access to They were serializing Akira in a colorized version very slowly, never got to the end of that, Uh, in more of a a sort of hybrid form, so it looked a bit like the format and size and colorization of like a Marvel comic, but they were perfect bound uh, and beautiful and amazing stories, of course. Uh, Nausicaa uh, started to appear in a, a flopped shrunk down, translated version. Uh, And again, I I don't know that I ever got to the end of that. They were still publishing that 10 years later. Uh, But yeah, so that was a period, sort of as a late teenager, before I went to university to do my undergraduate course where comics were emerging as something that was growing, was... Uh, starting to be about um, more interesting and more grown-up things. Uh, and that taste that I'd got in those early years of comics for grown-ups really took off at that period. Um, also in Calamity Comics, they had uh, Heavy Metal and I sort of had no idea that the French had been doing this for years, (laughs) and I was reading it not really knowing that these were translations from French, but it was grown up, it was sci-fi, it was kind of sexy and rude and dangerous and and extremely interesting. Uh, So yeah, uh, for my undergraduate degree, I'm a literature undergrad, um, but Sussex University uh, had at that time, and it still kind of retains this feeling, had a distinctive focus on interdisciplinarity and multidisciplinarity. Uh, At the time when I took my degree, you never just did one pure degree course. It was always with contextualised courses from other disciplines. So alongside my literature core courses, I was able to do things like art and letters in the 19th century and courses on film and philosophy and all sorts of other contextualising studies which set this uh path academically that i've continued right through till now where i am interested in those kinds of crossovers and the kinds of studies that fall in the gaps comic studies which didn't really exist at the time um but you know obviously does now i'm very proud to be part of the early days of uh, the emerging days of comic studies um so i managed to find a place for comics at university uh there was a literary magazine and I didn't have any real pretensions to be a poet I mean I I, I did have pretensions to be a poet but I was terrible Uh, (laughs) but what I could do that other people couldn't was do like visual poems and so in the literary magazine um, I, I did sort of one page drawings a little bit like Jaime Hernandez, a little bit like Aubrey Beardsley, who I'd come across alongside some words. And they were little, you know, visual vignettes, little visual poems. And they got published by this um, uh, small literary magazine at the university. And then later on, I had a very forgiving uh, Shakespeare uh, tutor who let me do my extended uh, essay and sort of mini dissertation, my undergrad degree on the comics, Shakespeare. Because this was a sequence which was being published with illustrators like Oscar Zarate and a load of others, some well-known, some less well-known, which would take the exact text of Shakespeare's plays but present it as a performance of Shakespeare. And such was my argument that uh, comics can do the kinds of things that a performance of Shakespeare could do, it must do, casting and set design and so on. Uh, And so I got away with writing that and that was uh, relatively successful. So that was a first foray into comic studies proper. At that time when I was looking around for what had been written about comics, there was very, very little. I found a few journal articles which were about like semiotics of comics and a couple of multimodal things. But, you know, um, MacLeod hadn't published at that point or at least it hadn't reached me yet. I did find at that period, um, Roger Sabin's Adult Comics, uh, and, and I, I was so delighted to find that because it talked about the stuff that I'd become so excited about and, and said a little bit about about comics and, and was a, a sort of anchor into the start of a comic studies world. And I later met Roger, which I was such a hero <laughs> worshipper about, and he was my external examiner eventually as well. Uh, yeah, so I'm giving the long version. Uh, So, uh, after that I started um, teaching, I was teaching EFL, I needed something to do in Brighton which I love, tourist town, wanted to stay there Uh, and so EFL teaching was something I could do and that afforded me um, the opportunity and necessity to learn about language properly, to learn about grammar which was an eye-opener and to learn how language really worked as well as to learn the practicalities of teaching. My folks, my parents were both teachers and they said, don't be a teacher, but I loved it. I really, really enjoyed this um, because I laughed every day and you could talk about any content you like. The point was you're using this medium of communication. Uh, I also found that I could draw a lot, right? And again, you kind of needed to, to get across vocabulary. I could draw things on the board. I could use diagrams and uh, really relish the opportunity to do that. So. Uh, It's a relatively unstable profession, however. Um, I'm sure it's still precarious today. So uh, eventually I figured I I need to get something which is a job type job that I can keep. Um, So trained to teach further education. So my parents were secondary teachers and I was like, I don't really want to teach secondary school. But college I like and uh, college it's people who are choosing stuff, just a few things that they really want to do. Uh, and so, I went off to do that and to, you know, could just about get the funding together to be able to do it, uh, and trained then to teach in further education, A-levels, it's kind of like high school in the US, uh, just prior to university, where I was teaching literature. Um, and it was soon apparent that not many English teachers knew enough about grammar and language to teach language, so I was soon recruited to do that. Um, also, at that period, people said anybody could teach media studies, so we can get you to do that course as well. And to be fair, a lot of it was stuff that I covered at university, uh, so I found a lot that familiar there. Uh, so I was doing that for a while in London, uh, then figured that actually I kind of like the media studies stuff and communication stuff. Uh, so went back down south, back to Sussex, and did masters in literature and visual culture so that there's a step into uh, the kind of media world Uh, and it made it easier and better to uh, be able to get a fixed job in the area that i wanted to go to with having uh, a masters underneath my belt and that again allowed me to explore comic studies a little bit um again on my film course i was able to talk somebody into letting me use scott mcleod and his transitions, because that had come out by that point and was absolutely eye opening. Piece of comics about comics uh, to talk about uh, film cutting and uh, you know, think about that framework and how it goes with with cuts between between films. So I think that's available on my academia.edu site if people want to read it. Um, it's a little, yeah, it's, it's a little dated and ambitious and, and not quite the direction I went in. But you see some of the seeds of the, the thought that I would later pursue uh in that early book uh yeah so i I was working in fe for about 10 years then after that uh and again trying to find opportunities to squeeze in comics Uh, and the way i found that i could do that at college was a sort of end year fun stuff section where some teachers took their Students off for a bike ride over the Sussex Downs, and uh, some did, uh, you know, putting together a play in a week. Uh, And I was like, right, 24 hour comics. I can't lock them in overnight, but I can give them like three times eight hours, like for three days. We're just writing, all of us getting together, and we're writing a 24 page comic in 24 hours. And I'm not really teaching that, at least that was my view, it's an excuse for me to start doing comics. Um, in a break at university, I had written and, and drawn my first comic, uh, broadly inspired by Hernandez Brothers, a little bit of Nausicaa, a little bit of Cronin, sort of the cross-hatching style, um, but hadn't really found the project and the discipline to keep writing in the intervening years. But this was a great excuse we've got 24 hours and 24 pages and the students are right there and we've got the time to do it. And so that's when I had quite a good run of about five or six years of comics production and working with them. And one of the things that that was emerging from that, even though I was like, I really don't want to be a teacher, I felt like I needed to give them a bit of an introduction to how we do comics. A lot of them were like manga fans or comics fans and producers anyway. A few people took it because it's a DOS, it's easy, a DOS, it's it's easy to do. It's a bit of English slang there. Um, And they had no idea how to create a comic. So I felt like I needed to give them something. And I kind of gave them McLeod broadly, nicked some stuff from Nat Madden and Jessica Abel, And this was pretty helpful. But I was starting to find that there were things that were going wrong with the comics that made them not add up terribly well, that weren't really covered by McLeod. Um, And because I was teaching linguistics, it started to occur to me that there were maybe things about cohesion that were really, really important in comics. Um, And that's where I started to think there might be a project here uh, about cohesion and visual cohesion. And I pitched a PhD proposal um, again to Sussex just because it was nearby. It was a little cheaper because I was an alumnus uh, to be able to do it, um, which was a, a sprawling thing about cohesion. But once I started um, on the course itself, it, uh, it started to take shape. Um, I realized where cohesion had come from, and it was this guy, Michael Halliday. And it wasn't ha- it wasn't the only thing that Halliday and Hassan had done, but there was this entire field of thinking about language uh that Halliday had worked on. And really early on. I went to um, Queen's University Belfast, where they had the first international linguistics conference that they were hosting there. And Halliday was there in his old age, in his retirement, alongside Hassan, giving the keynote speech. And so I met Halliday uh, and he was great and so generous and they were so useful. And I, I absolutely loved that experience. And that was one of the things that decided for me that this guy's approach was going to be really useful, and I, I learned a lot of other things there. It's just my first conference, just as an attendee, um, that that made me think there's stuff in linguistics that can really shape this way of thinking about comics, and not just through cohesion, but through this whole tripartite structure. Uh, yeah, so that eventually, I was doing it part-time, so it took quite a long time to work through it, took about six years, um, between 2011 and 2017. Uh, thesis then was examined by Roger and uh, thereafter he sort of encouraged me to to work it up into the book uh, and that kind of brings us up to about now I guess.
0: Sounds good and uh, if anyone listening has any of those uh, freebie indie circus comics uh, please get oh in God. touch with Paul directly <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, uh, many people have uh, all sorts of interesting things uh, around I'm sure that we Several people must have experienced something similar. That sounds like a really interesting uh, background getting into comics. Um, so, but- Yeah,
1: I mean, they're so ephemeral. That's, that's the tricky thing is trying to track down something from a remembered panel. Uh, I've searched for these things and got stuff that could be close. Even the EC comics, I, I don't think I've quite tracked down the exact version of the story that I read. Mm-hmm. But come close.
0: Yeah, a formal, but we never appreciate it as much when we're kids of knowing that it's going mm. to be hard to find in 30 years. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So, um, and yeah, you brought us right up to uh, where you ended up with the linguistics model. And I wanted to ask you if you could explain for listeners, what does a linguistic model specifically, if I'm getting this correct, Halliday's taxonomy of process types, mm-hmm. is that correct? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What does that do for our understanding of comics, uh, which other frameworks don't offer? You touched on this a little bit, but I'd really like if you could elaborate on it.
1: Yeah. So, um, as I discovered Halliday's work, and more and more of the pieces fell into place in thinking about it, I I saw that Cress and Van Leeuwen, for example, were taking this, in particular, its three-part structure of thinking about meaning-making in language and this approach to language that I had. I'd been teaching linguistics. I'd been teaching English as a as a foreign language for many years. I hadn't come across this way of thinking about it, thinking about it as doing stuff to each other rather than having, you know, syntax with syntax trees and lexicon and a grammar and so on, but rather that, that we're always trying to do stuff with language. Um, so Halliday's approach emerges in two parts. One is from teaching RAF airmen in the 50s how to speak Chinese, which is a language which is translatable into English, but uses really quite different elements of language to make its meanings, uh, in particular intonation, for example, which is part of the lexicon in Chinese. is something to do with the uh, sort of textual structure of um of language in English is to do pragmatics rather than uh, rather than lexis. Uh, so he was having to come up with a, a structure that I think really usefully does this. It separates the functional structure of language from its realizations in material properties of language, uh, whether they're written or spoken, uh, whether they are intonation or um, selections from lexis or word order or whatever they are. Okay, um, and that was great. Uh, his second approach to doing the same thing was observing his own child growing up uh, and the way that a child approximates their way to making meaning it's their big task. They've got a body, they've got a voice, they've got thumbs and fingers and hands and they, it's uh, imperative that they mean things <laughs> and get stuff done with these tools and they can see it happening all around and so they approach it from this place that is not. You know, learning the phonemic, phonemics first and then learning uh, the uh, lexicon or the morphology and then learning the grammar. It's, it's nothing like that. It grows, it emerges, it comes to being as they draw on the resources of their body to make meanings. Uh, and every time I read this, it's just like, oh, my, that's so cool, right? Because that gives us a way of thinking about comics as likewise, just doing whatever it takes to get the meaning across and you've got drawing you've got your hand you've got words you've got color if you want you've got text, you've got the page you've got the structure of the of the magazine format or the codex book format or whatever and what we're doing when we're doing comics is using those resources uh, in assorted ways to do the same kind of stuff that language is doing and so in particular um halliday's a three-part structure it is well explored in terms of looking at what language does, particularly the English language, okay? And if you want to talk about what images do, <laughs> that is it is compatible with language, if you want to articulate the grounds on which these ways of creating meaning can work together, then this systemic functional approach is going to be really, really useful. Right, So, rather than we talk about the word track using all the tools of linguistics or literature, and we talk about the image track uh, using the language of art or whatever, and often people adopt film as a sort of, it'll do, uh, set of terminology to talk about how both of these are kind of creating stories with some visual things and some sort of audio things, but they're not, they're written things. Um, maybe Halliday's approach will give us something that's on a relatively sound theoretical basis that could be grounds for talking about the two together um i haven't there talked specifically about process types which you asked asked me to focus on um but if i can sort of draw to that i i I just went through Halliday's approaches and thought what so what resources is comics doing to communicate these things and i sort of took it as a an axiom, a 10x starting point suggests that comics are doing these things, or trying to do them in some way or another, and so how did they go about it, uh, and started to find some interesting structures within the kinds of tools of comics that we use to get across different things. I happen to be t- talking this through um, some pre-university students at my college the other day, uh, that for example, the verbal process type is, is super interesting. Um, Halliday uses a comic to explain what he's talking about in the verbal processes like say, speak, tell and so on tend to be what he calls projective, i.e. the object of that verb is a whole load of other language. Okay, um, So we have these verbs with their particular grammar that we can select from in language. But in comics, we've got the balloon, the enclosure, the word balloon, the thought balloon and so on. Um, And that seems to go quite well together. Um, The material verb type, the material process verb, which is the kind of classic verb that people think of where stuff happens, action happens, uh, tends to be the level at which comics use, like transitions, like multiple panels, drawing typically bodies or objects in certain dispositions. And we take to it the idea that this pair of panels is is showing those things at different periods of time so that we can reconstruct a physical action that's supposed to have happened right, by inference uh, but we can also have single panels that do that where we just draw bodies in space in a certain shape uh, and the disposition of the of the body or the object implies that stuff is happening uh so that then is like Concrete line typically, right? As in the line that we draw represents something that's supposed to exist in the diegesis physically. Um, but something like a word balloon, and the words that we write in are non diegetic line, right? They're abstract line. So we don't suppose that the words are physically there or that the word balloon is physically there, though of course comics can mess with that in playful ways. Um, and so yeah i uh, trying to think about this and i think about it in part through drawing i came up with that map that appears in my book more than once of the process types against some four basic strategies for doing comics you draw you Draw twice and have pairs of panels implying stuff. You use abstract lines of whatever sort and you draw stuff that's not supposed to literally be visible in the diegesis, but is showing you that something is happening there. And then we'll see you can throw in words to try and um, fill the gaps. It, Mort Walker calls it cheating playfully. But a lot of what Mort Walker says playfully is kind of like, ah, uh-huh, ah, like Emanata, for example, comes from him. Uh, so, yeah. Um, I'm sometimes troubled that people think this is limiting or it's categorizing or it's trying to create minimal units, but even for even for Halliday, he shows these as a wheel and he suggests that any given verb sits somewhere on this wheel. It's not crisp. Uh, it's subject to change over time, for example, and other nuance. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it's not that um, verbs are featureless and identical either. So it's a framework that we put on stuff, knowing that the divisions of the framework are not in the original, but perhaps by putting a frame on it, it can help us to kind of find some categories with which to articulate what's going on in the comic.
0: And you're really highlighting the usefulness and kind of practicality of Halliday's system. Can I ask you, is this systemic utility the same thing that attracts you to Tokipona and specifically comics in Tokipona?
1: Uh, the wow, fact that's yes. just so, so applicable. Yeah. Uh, so that's left field because you know, I was just talking about uh, Toki Pona at Cambridge. Uh, Toki Pona then is a small language, tiniest language in the world, an artificial language. It's about 20 years old now, uh, only 120 words, and that is a wonderful experiment having massively limited resources to make meanings, uh, and so you have to build your contexts very carefully, and you typically have to use drawings or the world in front of you or the space in front of you to get across your meanings. But there's no word for mobile phone Uh, in one of those 120 words or even two of those 120 words. There's ilo, which is tool. But if I hold up uh, ilo me, my tool, you can see what it is. I don't need to put everything else. So it emphasizes the fact that it's already there that language is not just the words, it's not just the grammar, it's the body, the objects around us, our shared space and our It's language is stuff that we do to each other, it's not an inert system or anything like that. Uh, so yeah, Toki uh is it, useful, uh, it, it, its proposed use was to kind of simplify your thinking so that complicated things like mobile phones and schedules and syllabi you just don't have any words to be thinking about those and if you want to do it it kind of reveals to you how complex and multi-layered those kinds of things are actually if you want to try and specify them Toki Pana makes it really quite tricky to communicate some relatively basic ideas which it reveals are not actually as basic as we might think they are right it's easy to say me Pilin pona," I feel good now without time there's no tension toki pona uh, me is one of us or two of us there's no plurals there's no gendering um and uh instead of oh, oh my god rains outside it's drizzling for hours a yike i all you can really say in Tokipona, unless you choose to spend a lot of time expressing the idea is tell Oli Kama, water is coming and that's it <laughs> so it's not a terrible storm or drizzle or rain or blatter or anything like that it's water um yeah so that's that's kind of useful the the, the thing was was a bit of bit of a roundabout and, and left field way of coming back to language but um one of the things that drew me to it was given that it's only 120 words that really lends it to having one picture for every word and so there's this uh, set of uh of of glyphs uh, called sitelen sitelen drawing writing or sitelen means both writing and drawing so it's writing drawing drawing writing it's the same thing sitelen is just sitelen in w uh, which is kind of inspired by mayan glyphs uh, and so you can have genuine sequences of these little drawings in particular structures which are rather light panels and they're certainly sequential art That's nothing actually like what a comic looks like. So uh, one of the things that drew me to thinking about Toki Pona, particularly particularly Sitalen, was um, this sort of misconception about a language of comics which suggests that it is a sequence of panels. Even the idea of sequential art troubles me a little bit. If you think of comics as a sequence of panels, which is a bit like a word, and there is a syntax joining them. Well, here's what that looks like. And uh, we can see that "sitelen uh, sitelen" is used as the language within a comic, which contextualizes it and makes it make sense. And the comic is doing different things. And the comic doesn't look like more "sitelen sitelen." So it's a lovely demonstration that drawing in comics, whilst I take it to be usefully describable using this systemic functional um, framework that is compatible with language, It, it doesn't mean that comics are quite like a language in exactly the same way.
0: If I can ask you a technical question, a lot of people Mm -hmm. will be familiar with the utterance as a unit, but could you describe for listeners what an utterance is in the comics format
1: then? Yeah. Yeah, this is again a way to reach away from the idea of a sentence or a clause or anything sort of technical and formal that might be described linguistically. And utterance is used in linguistics typically to be neutral about that. I'm not going to make a decision whether this is a noun phrase or a clause or a sentence or whatever it is. But a person is producing some kind of communicative utterance uh, in order to do something. Uh, And that seemed quite useful for comics uh, is to think about when I'm drawing, I guess the thing is I'm not just drawing when I draw comics, I'm not just drawing to create an image of something which is in and of itself, though I might also be doing that. Uh I'm not creating something which is inert and to be looked at and, and supposed to represent, but I'm drawing that something. I, I'm I'm I, I'm using this to communicate something to you, to get something across to you that is a move within a larger system or sequence okay the other nice thing about utterances it sort of implies one turn but in a way um i'm doing a lot of mini utterances in this one big utterance yeah so it has this sort of scaling quality to it which lends itself as being quite useful uh, and one more thing uh, which i think i flag up in the book is that thierry Gronstein is obviously kind of brilliant about comics but isn't taking this linguistic framework um, to talk about comics describes comics I think comics panels as utterable and descriptible and interpretable and I thought oh, that's interesting and you can describe a comics panel and you can interpret a comics panel or page or an entire comic um, but also maybe think it's kind of already an utterance even though it's not using your mouth it's an utterance just like if I text you something or if i email you something that's still an utterance doesn't have to necessarily be audio we can still treat it at least as an utterance and i often drift into saying this is that this isn't that um but i always mean what if what if we look at it through this lens so so that's why i find utterance of value
0: and in addition to lovely terms like uh, descriptable, <laughs> um, mm. you use the concept of readerliness. And I thought that was mm. really interesting. And you're also using this framework in order to talk about abstract comics, which is very yeah. difficult. Could you explain what readerliness is uh, in abstract comics? Um, maybe I'll start by
1: talking a bit about abstract comics and why the hell, why would you start with abstract comics? And there's, <laughs> there's a couple of reasons, maybe three. Uh, one is that my my first supervisor for my PhD uh, knew a lot about art, knew a lot about literature, knew quite a lot about graphic novels, right, but was like I knew nothing about linguistics. And I already get linguistics, and he was kind of hostile to the project, which was incredibly useful, so valuable, because I had to really explain myself to this person. Uh, and one of the things he said is trying to get to grips with this is, and I think he thought this is going to be impossible. So let's look at abstract comics because um, Andre Melotti had published his collection and we were talking about it. And he said, write about that. Tell me about that as your first thing to write about. And so I did. And it was my first sort of conference presentation, which was about theory of of, of comics, um, because it's a challenge. What the heck are we doing when we are confronted with these abstractions? And Grunstein talks about them in Comics and Narration, I think. It might even be his first chapter. Is And he suggests that, that trying to look at abstract comics resents a really good test of how we are thinking about comics. Because they push at the borders of, is this even comics? Is it possible? Uh, can you read these things? Um, I... I I first came across abstract comics when I was in New York and I heard that there was this little comics place which was in a comics museum which was in a tenement building and I had to sort of go my way through these tiny little stairs up to this little room which was holding an exhibition of abstract comics. And so the abstract comics, many if not all from Molotiu's later collection, I say later, it might have existed at the time. I'd have to check on the dates. They were up and displayed on the wall. And looking around that room, like a gallery, looking at these collections of drawings in their little boxes made me think, these are not comics, right? We just looked at things. You can't read these. These aren't comics. What the heck? It's a funny idea. It's kind of interesting. Ha ha. But I can't read these. But then I... I couldn't forget it. I couldn't let go of it. It bugged me, and I got Melotti's collection, and I realised when you got it in a book, and the book is saying, "Go on, come on, read me. Go on, look, I'm a book. Read me." Uh, and and I started to work through them and, and turn the pages and make made effort to try and read it. And I was like, "You can, you know, you can." A, a gallery presentation kind of says, "Look at me. Don't read me. Look at me." Uh, But a book says read me, and it encourages in you engaging your readerly practices, right? Um, So I I use the term readliness, but I'm kind of grasping at something. Um, I I also use the term affordance, and really I'm suggesting that certain ways of presenting comics and certain ways of drawing afford comics readership, right? Molottiu draws attention to, say, Kandinsky works, which are also divided into what look a lot like panels, look a bit like, you know, Ivan Brunetti produces comics that look a bit like this. They're black and white, Um, they are abstract patterns, but. It, it doesn't give you any any hooks, any affordances to allow you to read it. And so as I was going through the effort of trying to read the abstract comics presented in Melotti's collections, I started to become aware of what am I doing? What am I looking for? I'm looking for identity. I'm looking for things that can be similar in comics, right? That's, that's not, never, not something I've particularly stopped and thought about before, but that's what I expect from comics. I think time is moving forward, right? And I'm trying to read this as if I'm moving forward. I'm also going top left to bottom right and doing a bunch of different things, unless, and this was always the caveat, unless the comic is telling me to do something different by whatever means the artist can think up of. And so I felt engaged in this game of trying to be a reader, trying to decipher these objects which were the intermediary between me and the abstract comics creator yeah, and that it worked and I can read what's going on, oh my goodness. Uh, and then having gone through that, starting to think, yeah, and so if this is the comicsness of these texts which in so many ways abandon what I would later be able to call the ideational content of comics, that's one of Allarday's tripartite things, it's doing all of the interpersonal engagement of me as a reader in trying to collaboratively create meaning and also there's textual qualities here that become salient because I need to look for whatever I can to try and connect these multiple abstract images into one text and I find that I sort of imbue the characters with life so my first published article and, and uh, this was based on the paper that I gave was was called animating the narrative in, in abstract comics because it seemed to me that that's what you're doing you're trying to construct a living world or a living story from reading off these materials that have been presented in front of you and you took certain strategies to do it um and that was that was the core of what would later be articulated as like maxims of comics readership um and uh yeah, the, I I started off giving that paper in a literary conference. I think they had no idea what to make of it. Uh, when I when I gave the paper or a version of it at transitions, uh, that that struck interest in people and was very productive for me.
0: Always uh, important to know the audience, right? Yeah. And uh, talking about audience, so what are the implications of your framework for comics creators? And I'm thinking about the article you wrote for Comics Grid: New Choices for the Comics Creator. Uh, how can how can we practitioners uh, apply the linguistic approach
1: well I think this is one of the affordances to use that word again of, of linguistics is um, comics has often been approached within literary studies which is all about reading and readership and the death of the author who cares about how texts are produced likewise maybe from Film studies and media studies, they tend to be about audiences and consumers and analysts and so on. But it's fundamental to linguistics that we're talking about talkers and speakers and creators of meanings. It's not like there's inert text that we are merely interpreting, but we're thinking about the strategies that people use to make meaning, especially within Halliday's approach to linguistics. So that was another thing that was interesting to me because I had been a comics creator and was being a comics creator and working alongside comics creators and trying to think how can we articulate what we're doing to each other that that made me think that linguistics because it cares about those things really obviously is kind of a good framework to use now of course it can be an interpretive framework okay uh, and so alongside the the new choices of the comics creator cheaply named uh, I also list uh, questions to ask about comics texts. And so that was derived from the burgeoning thesis when I was teaching at Sussex University and teaching entry-level undergrad courses on which there's the token graphic novel bit at the end. And students are like, how do I how do I write about this? It's, it's a bunch of pictures. Uh, and so this was taking ideas uh, that had emerged from my thesis and saying, look for this, look for this. How's this working? How's the creator doing Doing this? And so on and so forth. Uh, and then alongside that, I was thinking, right, so what would I go back and say to my comics group when we were all making 24-hour comics together? What tips would I give? And we had, and I used at the time, making comics, I think by that point had been published by Scott Cloud, uh, and he gives choices, uh, and they're like choice of frame and choice of moment and and choice of word. And they just struck me as being like, I'm not sure I make those choices like that. For a starter, a comics panel is not a frozen moment in time. A bunch of things are happening with comics panels. Um, In another paper, I talked about Spider-Man and Spider-Man covers and Spider-Man representations. And one of the things that strikes me about Spider-Man, especially Spider-Man flash, uh, excuse me, splash pages, is the hand is doing one thing. The arm is doing a different thing. The head is orienting at a different moment. There's stuff going on in the background that's occurring at different times. So if he looks utterly distorted in his body, it's because actually each of those bits of the body are doing different things at different stages. It's not, it's not a Screenshot, it's not a camera, it's not a snap, it's not a film frame. Um, so thinking about the ontology of those, it, I think, is quite important. Uh, I've lost track of where I was. We were talking about uh, yeah, choices, choices. So, I don't think you're choosing a moment, there's multiple things, and so uh, the choices were it struck me that character design was really important. Um, not just per se to make it look good, but thinking about that multi, multifunctionally, that your character design, of course, needs to have ideational content. You want it to look like something and mean something. But also, uh, you've got to think about its textual qualities because you're going to be drawing that character again and again and again, and there's got to be nice, clear hooks that will make that character recognisable from frame to frame to frame, drawing to, drawing to drawing to drawing, page to page to page, so that the reader can follow it you're laying down breadcrumbs, you're laying down threads for that readerly practice to engage with you in co-creating the meaning that you're creating. Um, I'm trying to remember now what were the other things that I listed in the choices that I suggested. I'm doing this next week with a a group and I haven't gone back to them yet. Um, Yeah, so the process types is important because in any drawing in a comic you're trying to get across what's happening probably in the most efficient way possible um possibly over determining it so using multiple ways to communicate it uh, and also i think i haven't talked yet about the awareness that these process types kind of seem to form in a stack uh, so that rather than you selecting one verb from a bunch that sits in a wheel if i'm going to draw somebody talking well i put the balloon and i can write their words in there but the balloon's got a tail and the obvious choice is you've got to draw their face and some part or other of their body and then you've got to draw their expression and if this is your style you've got to draw the background again right and there's in principle commitments to just keep redrawing certain things so thought and verb verbiage tends to be at the top of this um the action tends to be the kind of next level and then uh, at the bottom level there's there's the world building stuff the sort of drawing the redrawing and redrawing the clothes and the hairstyle and the backgrounds and so on now anybody who's created comics will know we do our best to avoid having to do that again and again uh, so i bring in Wally Wood's 22 panels that always work and they're all ways of evading the in-principle commitments of having to redraw by drawing outside or doing silhouette or doing something else to sort of textually play with it so enough is going on that the reader can make sense of it, but you, the poor, hard-work, time constraint creator, are not having to redraw and redraw. And if you're Dave Sim, you just give the backgrounds to Gerhardt and just let him do the hard cross-hatching work. You know? So there's that possibility. Um, other things then later on is like... Um, narration, um, and and hypertaxis. So this is another drum that I've banged a lot, is again with this idea that comics are sequential art, is you can do it at the same time and you can put stories within stories and most of the comics I love do that Uh, and that is one of the things that comics can do kind of uniquely it's unlike film Mm -hmm. there are ways film can do this Uh, but comics can do things that film can't in terms of like drawings within word balloons uh, and then word balloons that kind of expand out into drawings and so on and so forth so think about how you could instead of just putting ideas in sequence put ideas one inside each other (laughs) Uh I lost my page for a moment. Yeah. Um so last couple of things then were and this occurred to me is how much do you squeeze into one page. Certainly with me trying to reach twenty four panels in twenty twenty-four pages, excuse me, in twenty-four hours, I often wanted to not put too much into one panel, or if you're gonna have a big panel, then you can put multiple things into there. If you've got more time to work on stuff, you can make your pages really dense someone's reading. I, think I might have been reading Craig Thompson's Have BB Regardless of what you think about the content, it is a deeply textured work where there's a lot going on and there's a lot going on at the same time, uh, which again can lend to the sort of depth and texturality of, of comics. Uh, and then, yeah, the final one I think is, is what can you miss out? What work can you leave other people to do? Which is another imperative of working on 24-hour comics is if I could drop my character in a hole then for two pages i can draw black just ink it in and draw eyes and then write any of the words because he's down a hole wonderful i'm two pages further in uh and so thinking about what you can leave out what you cannot draw how much you can get away with leaving the reader to do it's not only good for you as a creator because it saves your work but also it does that work that comics readers love to do because they want to play with you, they want to fill the gaps, they want to work it out, they want to be like, oh, I see what's going on here. You've given me enough that I'm imagining uh, in what you're trying to get across. and. Yeah, it's, it's not just transitions between sequences of panels, but I think comics do that kind of ellipsis and implicature at all sorts of levels, uh, especially the cohesive level.
0: And in your book, you focus on play and then particularly uh, you say pleasurable play in engaging the reader with the comics narrative. And I don't know what you're reading, but some of the stuff I'm reading is pretty dark. So I wanted to ask you how this fits in with difficult comics, with sad or scary content Is there still that pleasurable interaction between the the reader and the narrative?
1: (laughs) Yes, just like there's pleasure in going to see a horror movie or seeing a documentary about something terrible. We're engaging in it and we're getting a certain amount of pleasure of that engagement. And again, this is about separating the interpersonal interaction and the textual work we're doing from the ideational content. Uh, uh, I nicked the Whilst the fundamental structure of of that chapter, um, which I call Games, Comics, Play, comes from Halliday uh, and the idea that in language we are not simply communicating information, we're not simply giving statements, but we ask questions and we demand things of people and we offer things to people, right? So that was my starting framework for thinking about, okay, comics are not just about communicating a story, but they're about engaging us in interaction with them. and, And for me, That's what I love in comics and stuff that kind of loosely looks like a comic. It's got drawings in it. It's got words in it, but it's not playing that game with me. It's like, come on, mate, I came to you to play comics with you, play comics with me, (laughs) Uh, whatever your content. Um, And so, uh, I, I read Eric Byrne on games people play, which I'd read before, and he characterises human interpersonal relationships and psychodramas that people play out together using these structures of games. So, I, to to make this stuff accessible, and I'm always trying to move a little bit away from linguistics, and certainly if it's in linguistics, a little bit away from grammar to give people hooks, <laughs> affordances through which they can maybe use my ideas if they want, if if they like them, they can take them on with them. Uh, And so I love the way that Byrne named his games and they are nasty games. The game Alcoholic, the game Now I've Got You, You Son of a Bitch, right? His games are vicious games, yeah? So he presents them as games and says we play with each other, but the content is, is not pleasurable. Though he is saying that we keep doing it even though we see the content's bad because there's a pleasure in being roped into this game and having a role to play. And we're sort of on some other conscious level or subconscious level, um, He's speaking in psychoanalysis. um, We are kept engaged with those because there is some kind of thread of pleasure in that. Okay. Does that
0: explain why he's engaged? uh, (laughs) No, no, I, I think that's really interesting. I'm not familiar with that set of theories, but I can see why it would be engaging. Oh, and we were talking about uh playing and being engaged and uh playing comics, uh could you tell us about your own drawing and your own sketchnoting? Oh yeah.
1: Um yeah, so I, I've tried to sort of practice what I preach and as as we said earlier, you know, this is linguistics about talking as well as reading and so I, I You know, I wanted to keep creating comics. Hard to find time to do it. I had a very productive period when I was doing these 24-hour comics. That would guaranteed each summer get one 24-page comic done. Uh, And I was able to carve out time at that point uh, during the summer holidays to do maybe another one as well. Um, Once I started a PhD, the time to create became much more minimal. And so I wasn't creating fiction comics of any length. But um, I was kind of aware that people going along to comics conferences were often artists and creators, and they would doodle away in their sketchbooks alongside their notes. Uh, and I think it was Muna Alchowada, at a graphic medicine-themed conference who got us to draw about old people. Uh, M- Muna Al-Jawad writes uh, as the old person whisperer. and creates comics about her interactions with older people uh, older patients in a sort of clinical and um, and caring setting uh, and she got us to draw an old person in our life and so there i was i had my notebook and i had a pen in my hand and i was like drawing and writing alongside i was like i like doing this i'm gonna draw the next um panel as well. I'm going to try doing some drawings alongside it. Why not? And that started me on a roll of, of increasingly doing this and gradually developing um, to do it regularly, uh, partly just as a discipline for my own interest. Uh, also as a test of what can I draw? What am I drawing? What's the function of drawing in sketchnoting? What's it doing for me and what's it doing for others? Um, one thing it's doing for me was... It was a different kind of paying attention than taking notes on an iPad. Um, and whilst an iPad is searchable uh, and you've got all the text down there, I found that I didn't often go back and search it. But if I'd drawn something, I was a bit more likely to flip back through. And I could also remember the person's face. Sometimes it's not their name, nor what they said, but I knew I'd drawn them. <laughs> and it was a bit trickier to flip back through which journal it was that that I kept that sketch noting in. But I but I often I could find it and remember a little bit about their, their project. So it was quite a nice mnemonic aid, actually, um, in the end. The flip side was sometimes there were bits where I would zone out because I was drawing something and I might miss crucial things. Made me really appreciate people who had well organized PowerPoints, left them up. On the key slides for a long time, or kept reiterating their key terms and so on, uh, and also having physical abstracts that really would help me make sense of somebody's uh, presentation. But also that practice, then, was encouraging me to do that: was to read the abstract when I settled in, and think about what the key terms are, and really, you know, engage with with the presentation that I was I was viewing. Um, the other thing is people like to be drawn <laughs> and it's social again it's social it's interactive it's human and people would see that i'm drawing them and they kind of go oh, can i can i see your drawing of me and they'd be really delighted and want to take a snap or catch them later and then people have published those they've, they've been in a couple of um, issues of studies and comics for example and they've been in their own little leaflets often to accompany comics, like the Paris Comics Conference. There were a load of sketchnotes. Uh, sometimes conferences have now put out particular calls for sketchnoters because many people are doing it. John Myers, in particular, is a friend of mine who does loads of these. Uh, Phil Vaughan, I think, often does it. And, and lots and lots and lots of other people do sketchnoting, including yourself, of course. And that seems to be quite a nice, distinctive tradition for us comic scholars to be doing as well. I I like it. I like it. I like it to be a thing. Uh, I I, I might in the next IGNCC talk more about sketchnoting. I've given some presentations which are uh, which have been all about sketchnoting in previous conferences a little bit in conferences um, but uh, at Oxford Torch I was invited to talk about my stuff and, and and with a particular focus on sketch noting i think i've talked about similar things at, at graphic brighton uh but i might come back to it again for igncc because it's been a bit over 10 years now it's been about 10 years of sketch noting it's been over 10 years since i started my phd but it's been about 10 years of sketch noting with the massive hole of covid of course where i did so much less drawing than i would uh otherwise and i i also now have a a, a toddler baby daughter and so that's meant that I don't get to as many face-to-face conferences for as long as I would like to do uh, that much sketchnoting. But yeah, um, there's drawings on the cover of my book. I do drawings on the inside as well. I I would use drawings and diagrams to to think about the ideas and to try and express the ideas. and the sketch noting has been away again a bit like the 24-hour comics where I've reliably got a fixed place and task and time where I'm doing it and there's no putting it off and there's no I haven't got an idea I'm doing it and so that keeps up my drawing and writing practice.
0: And I'll just clarify for listeners who might not be familiar, the IGNCC is the International Graphic Novel and Comics Conference, which is held a yearly at varying locations around the British Isles. Um, and I, can I ask you, Paul, do you teach your students sketchnoting and encourage them to do that? Or do you find they come to it naturally themselves?
1: Um, I, I'm my teaching at the moment is mainly to A-level, sort of so pre-undergraduate students, um, whom I encourage to think about the visual. And they do have a language research project where I'm like, "Hey, anything about comics, I'm going to be into." Um, I also give talks to the animation and illustration students, but I'm not the main teacher on there. So, so it's not something I promote. And this this came up at the Oxford Torch. Uh, seminar as well it's like are you recommending this are you saying we should do this how do you do this if you're a physics student and no no i'm not i'm not recommending it for everybody uh but i'm saying that i find it interesting and it gives me these affordances uh people like it it is of value and interest and of course it's related to sort of graphic um facilitation right where people want you to be standing at a board and drawing stuff so that everybody can make sense of it. Yeah, I think you do need to have a certain skill, a certain inclination to do these things. Um, you can certainly use visual properties in your note-taking. I would encourage that, the use of space, the use of line, diagram, uh, and that kind of thing. But, you know, I wouldn't recommend that all my students get a brush pen and start, you know, scribbling cartoony versions of people. That's just my bag. <laughs> you can do whatever you like.
0: I will. I will encourage my students (laughs) to try. (laughs) I'll hand out the pens. Um, So, Paul, what projects are you working on now? And is there anything you're looking forward to at this time? Oh, yeah. So
1: I I keep thinking about what book project there might be. And I've got a couple of ideas. But, but yeah, like I said, my time at the moment has been quite constrained. So COVID got in the way. Uh, of many many things in in uh, scholarship, including comic scholarship, uh, and I had a baby daughter, and so you know she takes up an awful lot of my time, and my wife is completing her PhD, so <laughs> that takes priority at the moment. So so my stuff has been a little bit on the back burner, but I've kept things ticking over. I've got a couple of chapters forthcoming. One is a reprint, actually, of the. Abstract comics chapter from Studies in Comics. So Julia Round has been working for quite a while, pulling together uh, a sort of best of Studies in Comics. But the publishers were like, we can't just do reprints. So there's a couple of original ones, and it's it's about multimodality. It's called Multimodal Comics: The Evolution of Comic Studies. Hopefully, should be out next year, uh, 2023. Uh, I also wrote stuff for a collection that Nancy Pedry's putting together about intermediality and comics, super interesting and got me to read a lot more about that field, which, you know, I didn't really know the scholarship in that field per se, because of course it takes in film and music and, and all sorts of things which had not previously been my bag um, with a bunch of other very, very interesting people writing there. And so, uh, yeah, that, fell fallow for a little while, but we recently heard from Nancy again, that seems to be underway, hopefully might be out next year. And that was an opportunity actually to reflect on my early comics creation, as well as collaborations on comics and the role of language as an intermediary in all of these things, uh, in the way that we prepare comics, the way that we talk to each other about comics, the way that the structures of talk, you know, narration starts with talk right way way back when uh and so it's it's always there that is my argument in in the chapter that that language plays a role somewhere alongside comics construction and that's in in a way a a further justification for why you're using linguistics and i think there's some sort of backup to that that this sort of languagey structures whatever they are we don't have to be dogmatic about them, lurking around the practice of comics creation, comics communication.
0: Lurking structures. I love that. Um, So uh, I think that's where we'll uh, leave it for now. And I'm sure that we'll have a chance to talk again in the future, especially with upcoming projects. Um, So thank you very much for your time today, Paul. And uh, it was a pleasure to talk with you.
1: And a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me.